Well, good morning, church. All right, it's a good morning indeed. Um, if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastor elders here at Cross Point, and uh, my wife and I have been covenant members here at Cross Point for 10 years. And yeah, no, a long time. And, um, and this year and this Sunday is uh, really or I guess next Sunday is uh, our last time with you. Um, we I am moving from not moving literally, but like moving from governing elder here at Crosspoint, one of the governing elders here at Crosspoint to governing elder at a church plant born of this church. I need y'all to, to, to recognize the beauty that we have been gifted as a congregation to see people from here sent out into mission to reach the least, the last, and the lost. And so New City Fellowship is a church plant born of Cross Point. And next week is our commissioning service. What is mission if we are not commissioned to go on and do it? And so next week is our commissioning service. And so I want to invite you to invite others to come and experience the generosity of this church. To be generous as God has been generous. To be giving as God is giving. To be good as God is good. That is your story. That is our story. And that is what New City, New City Fellowship will do um, as well. Amen? All right. Well, with all that said, are you ready to study your Bibles? Some of y'all still got Thanksgiving in the belly. Y'all sleep. Y'all got to wake up. Why don't you meet me in the book of Romans chapter 5? And as you get there, I want to frame up our time together. In Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5 stands as one of the greatest chapters of the letter. Chapter 8 probably being the other uh, greatest letter. Because chapter 5 is the beginning of the turn of the letter's emphasis. It's the beginning of the proclamation of the Christian's true state. See, chapters 1 through 4 exist to uh, 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 proclaim the state of humanity's condition. Specifically, chapter 1. If you want to know just how unrighteous you truly are apart from God, there it is. Romans chapter 1 is your rap sheet. It's your list of dirty deeds. It's not only the portrait of your heart, but it's also the uncovering of your previous identity. Surely it's deeply theological and deeply spiritual. But what Paul expresses in Romans chapter 1 through 4 about the depravity of man, about the fallenness of the human condition, that we are dead in our trespasses, doomed to die because of Adam's curse, is expressed. It expresses itself in the outer workings of humanity as well. 
In other words, what is in our hearts, our hands will work towards. Whatever is the state of our soul, whatever is the belief of who we are in our hearts, we will live and work towards to worship with our lives. Paul says, if I could paraphrase, without the intervention of God, since your birth, you were filthy, stained, marked for death, an enemy of God. Then comes chapter five. The emphatic declaration that while you were in such a sorry state, something was done about it. Thank you. Something was done by someone, not you, to move you from enemy to child of God. Paul writes to the Christian here, reminding them of what is so easily forgotten. What Paul writes here is the anchor beneath the surface of the water that keeps the Christian stable. No matter what kind of gust of wind or thrashing wave might say. And family, when God makes you a son, when God makes you a daughter, what comes with that is so much, so much to your advantage, so much to your benefit that Paul had to write this lengthy letter to tell you about it. And yet oftentimes, church, what we find out, living as long as you have, it doesn't matter what age you are, you know this. We convince ourselves that what sustains us from drifting is not the anchor we cannot see sunken beneath the surface, but the reality of our contributions to what's going on around us. In other words, church, you might find yourself pursuing joy by rejoicing in what you've done above the surface rather than what was done on your behalf beneath the surface. And the world doesn't help us. Our culture preaches this to us. In the ocean of Americana, particularly at the end of the year, there is in our culture an undercurrent of an attempt to Foster happiness with effort. My language is intentional here. In a world that is not as it was meant to be, we spend the last several weeks of the year doing everything we can to let happiness stay for a while. We change the decorations. We change the music. We eat food that we don't normally eat throughout the year. We spend time with family that we don't regularly see. The work pace is slower. The movies are all themed. We play, we eat, we buy, we consume, we relax, we open presents. It's all there. The recipes for supposed happiness. But there are some of you this morning who have experienced the trouble of this season. You've experienced the trouble of this season's pursuits when it crosses the reality of life. For some of you, and if not you, then likely someone you know, the holiday season we find ourselves in right now can be difficult. It brings with it 
Not only its attempts to make one festive and happy, but it also brings with it grief and sorrow and loneliness or despair. You might say, how could this be? With all the things we do to pursue joy, how can we still find that happiness is such an elusive prey? In all our efforts to foster happiness, happiness is still hard to keep home. It seems sometimes that David had it wrong. That happiness might tarry for the night. But sorrow comes in the morning. Now, some of you know what I'm talking about. When all the holidays are done, when all the family has gone home, when the reality of work picks back up, when the decor comes down, when all the festivities are done, and when all that there is is the complexities of life, where is the reason to rejoice? The apostle has some words for us. And so I want to title our time together in this passage, Reasons for Rejoicing. Reasons for Rejoicing, as Paul gives us five deeply rich, deeply true, and deeply satisfying reasons the Christian has to rejoice in every season of life. Five reasons so you can follow along with me. Your position Your prospects, your problems, your possessions, your God's person. I have to tell you, church, that you might find these reasons this morning easy to digest. You might find this morning, because of the nature of our culture, these reasons might be easy for you to embrace. But what I preach to you this morning is not a post-Thanksgiving sermon. This is words worth remembering every single day. So if you could, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? And then I invite you to pray for me as I pray for you as we together hear what thus says the Lord. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 1. God's word reads like this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice In hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died For the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much 
more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Lord, we bless your name this morning. It is an undeniable truth that we have just heard from you. Reading your word, God, is like listening to your voice. Father, this love letter, which you have written to us, is deep, full of truth, And we need your help to understand the totality of it this morning. Take us by the hand. Sit us on your lap. And bring us to the understanding, to the affection, to the soul anchoring truth of who we are and what we have in light of you. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. Would you gift me as the preacher with clarity of speech and thought? And would you give the congregation with attentiveness and grace for my errors in Christ Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. My grandmother wouldn't like me telling you this, but she ain't here. So we're going to keep it between us. She spends every afternoon. Just after dinner, watching the same show. The show is called Caso Cerrado. Oh, yeah, some of y'all know what I'm talking about. (laughs) The phrase means, the name of the show is, the case is closed. On each episode, Cuban-American lawyer... Ana Maria Polo tries to settle disputes between conflicting parties, usually related to marital issues or sometimes violence or issues of child abuse. Sometimes she just has segments where she tries to teach the viewer about the law. Uh, but she, she doesn't do it as a judge. She does it through arbitration. She, she uh, acts as an arbitrator trying to settle differences between litigants. Well, What the show is famous for is after every case, she declares the terms of justice, bangs on the gavel, much like a judge, and declares the famous words, the case is closed. I don't know if she intended to preach, but nevertheless, when I think back to Romans chapter one, where Paul says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in these words, I see myself as a guilty sinner, stained by every sin of the world, including my own. And I find myself falling short of the glory of God in my life. I then flip to Romans chapter 5 
and before my eyes read, therefore, since we have been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. All I can hear in my mind, the scene that plays in my head, is the gavel smashing against the wood and the pronouncement over me that the case is closed. It's done. I was hostile to God, but now I have peace. I was covered in the stench of hell, guilty for all my sin, but now I stand justified by my faith in his work. The case is closed. That's my first point. Romans 5, 1 and 2 is the pronouncement of your present position. You need to know, church, that our justification is not merely a promise of heaven, but a taste of heaven here on earth because it is the source of all blessings we enjoy here and now. I'll make my case. Here's the thing. Paul also is clear. That this legal standing we have before the judge, the great judge, is a forever standing. It's a once justified, always justified. I wish I had a sinner in here who knew what this meant for you. We learn here that apart from the workings of Christ, the sinner is an enemy of God. Because they have no shot. At satisfying God's demands, God's commands and laws, and therefore no shot at having peace with the one who condemns him for his sin. What I'm saying to you, church, is that apart from God, there's nothing you can offer him to remove the judgment that is on you. But while we were yet sinners, Paul says in verse 6, Christ died For the ungodly. Oh, there's a lot of things you can be unsure of in this world. You can be unsure of what career plan you want to take. You can be unsure if the sickness that plagues your body will ever go away. You can be unsure of what you'll wear to work tomorrow. But what you can't be unsure about, what you can know today definitively, is that it is the will of God for this to be a reason for your joy. That this marvelous truth should incite you to rejoice every day. All the treasures and trinkets of the world cannot purchase for you this soul-defining reality and what it does for you. The Christian can be broke, busted, and disgusted And still be the happiest person in the world. Because they've been justified for all time. The curse of sin. The stench of hell. The stain of guilt has been bleached white by the blood of Christ. Uh, You're not with me. I love how Paul phrases this. He says, you now have access by faith into the grace in which we stand. The word access here means bringing with or introducing. In other words, Christ, with his death, burial, and resurrection, has introduced us to a new standard by which we are judged. 
The Christian is no longer judged by the merits of the law. But now the Christian is judged by the riches of God's grace. We go to the king because of the merits of somebody else. A few years ago, I had to go to the DMV to renew my license. And I had to go in person. There was a thing with my license. And the only day I had available was a day that I had other things to do. And I was on a time crunch. I had to get it done quickly. And so I went bright and early in the morning. But for those of you who live here in Central Florida, you know the DMV is basically hell. It is weeping, moaning, and gnashing of teeth. All of it. It is the fiery furnace. And you have no choice but to wait. Yeah. So I walk into the DMV. I'm thinking I'm early. No, I wasn't. The line was out the door. It was insane. And so I go and I think to myself, well, everything else I have to get done is just not going to get done. This is a complete waste of my time. It's a ruin. I'm ruining my day. And so I grab the ticket and I go to go. Well, I go to the back of the line to grab the ticket. And as I'm getting to the back of the line, which was outside, as I'm walking back out, I hear someone call my name. And as I look around to see who who would have called me, one of the clerks called me and said, come over here, I'll take care of you. What Paul means here. When he says we have access, that we stand in grace is that due to the merits of somebody else, you reap all the benefit. It's not my will that I went to the front of the line, but by the merits of somebody else who called my name. That at the petition of somebody else, of no merit of your own doing, you got favor. And that favor positions you directly in front of the king you stand now today in grace and because so paul says rejoice oh but that's not enough to make you feel glad this morning paul gives another reason to rejoice he says your future prospects are already taken care of in other words you can rejoice today Because your tomorrow is already safe in his hands. Uh, If I'm watching live TV, which is very rarely these days. But if I am, there's essentially only one channel my TV is on. ESPN. And on the NBA offseason, I love to watch the NBA offseason. Because all it is is the analysts, the professionals, the experts making guesses about which stars are going where. And then you get to October and they're all wrong all the time. It just makes for good TV because you're like, oh, great. He's going to my team or he's going to that team. But the reality is always different. They can't predict the future. Paul says here at the end of verse two that the Christian can hope 
in the glory of God. What Paul means here is that you can, what you can put your hope in, what you can put your confidence in, what you can bet the bank on is that you will see the great day of glory when Christ comes for his bride. Paul says, while the world guesses and argues, while theorists bicker and banter, you can be confident that you will see the glory of God on full display on that great day. Notice the exchange family. In chapter 1, Paul says, man has fallen short of the glory of God. But in chapter 5, Paul says, those who are justified today look to tomorrow with great anticipation of partaking in the glory of God. In chapter 1, the lack of hope, the lack of certainty. There, there, There is a lack of hope, a lack of certainty, and that is cause for worry and anxiety. But in chapter 5, the hope of the Christian to see the glory of God is reason for rejoicing. Your future is secure. Paul says, your present position was because of something done in the past. And then he says, your tomorrow is already taken care of. But what of today? What of today? What of the hard things you and I go through? What of the pain and the trouble? What of the grief and the loss? What of the maladies and the moments of sorrow? What about today? Paul says, with the same excitement and the same energy and the same vibrancy of verses 1 and 2, he says in verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Family, this is great news. This is great news. Not only do we rejoice in our position and prospects, we rejoice in our problems. Don't mistake Paul here. He's not advocating for escapism. He's not suggesting that we take on a martyr complex. He's not advocating for masochism. Rather, what he is showing us is that trouble is to be expected. That the environment in which we live in today, the problems that we have are inevitable. Christianity is not a silver bullet to make your problems go away. No, the gospel instead offers the reality that problems will come, but you get to go through them differently because they serve a greater cause. John 16, Jesus himself teaches this to the apostles. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace and in the world you may have tribulation. The word tribulation here means pressure. Nobody likes pressure. Pressure busts pipes and pops balloons. Nobody likes to feel life coming down on them. Nobody likes to feel like their world has folded up on itself and they find themselves in the middle. Nobody praises God when everything is falling apart. Paul says here, the state of your justification is not an escape from the trials of life. But for the Christian... And the Christian alone, these trials, these problems, they don't work against you. They work for you. 
In Romans 8, Paul doubles down on this idea. He says, what can separate us from the love of God? No, nothing. Suffering included. How is this so? The text says that suffering, our problems, produces endurance in you. The word endurance translates to abiding under, which suggests to you and I that when we learn to abide, when we learn to trust in Christ, when all is well and good, we also learn to abide in him when problems produce pressure on us. I know I'm talking to at least one person in here. This is an attitude altering reality. Paul says the Christian is like a nail. The more life's problems hit us, the more deeply we're driven in him. That's God's gift to you, family. Endurance. Life won't limit you. Trouble won't trouble you. Anxiety cannot antagonize you. Maladies won't mess with you. The harder you get hit, the more firmly you find yourself in him. Ah, but endurance isn't the only gift problems bless us with. He says, endurance produces character. The Greek here is approvedness that comes with passing a trial. In other words, when you overcome the trials of this world, faithfully clinging to the hope we have in Christ, you get stamped official. Approved, genuine. In other words, this means that problems are necessary for the Christian. Sorry. They are necessary because when the Christian goes through them, we get marked approved, authentic, the real thing. When the Christian passes through the fire of trials with faith in Christ and hope For the glory of Christ, they are made by the fire more bonded to Christ in faith and able to testify the genuineness of Christ's goodness in the midst of their problems. Church, problems are contexts for you to exercise faithfulness to the Lord, to trust in his sovereignty, to take the embrace of his love. And this preaches. When you suffer, there are people watching. There are souls witnessing. Your friends, your spouses, your children, your neighbors are all watching you go through what you go through. And when you come out of the fire, like Job says... What we see is someone marked saint, someone stamped approved, someone genuine. Oh, I hope you understand then that to hope and long for a life this side of heaven without problem and pain is wildly counterproductive to your faith. See the next link in the chain. That is produced by your problems is hope. Endurance makes character. Character then produces hope, which means confidence. Those who have been through pain before 
can look confidently at pain in coming with confidence that this too will not separate them from the love of God. What the end of verse 5 tells us is that when the Spirit of God enters the life of the justified, he opens blind eyes to the wonder of his divine love and shows them that from now on, they are always wrapped up in the confines of his love. Which then makes some of your problems the ordained means by which you can see the proof of his love on you. You will never experience anything in this world that hasn't already ran through the good, through the loving, through the sovereign intentions and care of God. The problems are for you. They work in your favor. And if that were not reason to rejoice, to rejoice enough, Paul continues in verse six. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even after all of that, should there be any doubt in your mind about the love of God toward you, particularly when the pressures of this life try to preach to you that God is uncaring or forgetful, here is the greatest reminder of just how much God loves you. That at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The love of God here in these section of verses stands in contrast to the best of what human love can offer. Paul says, That man might think twice before dying for a good cause or even dying for a good person. But Christ accepted the cross, the most inhumane, most punishing, most gruesome death imaginable for unworthy recipients. Paul makes our unworthiness known to the fourth degree. He says we were without strength, that we were ungodly, that we were sinners and finally enemies. We lacked the power. We lacked the mind. We lacked the attitude. We lacked the capability to make salvation from sin and death even a question in the realm of possibility. We were lower than low, pitiful. You must see The connection in Paul's words here between what humanity is and what humanity does to feel the full weight of our loneliness. The term enemy helps us best under the microscope. Enemy here is both active and passive. It's passive in that it states who we are. It's active in that it tells us what we do. We are passively enemies who are actively against God in our sin. We are not only unable to save ourselves due to our uncleanliness, 
but it is also that we are unclean that we must take responsibility for. We are passively and actively unworthy. But God's loving provision is provided plainly. It is the love of God in sending Christ to be our perfect sacrifice that deals both with what we do and with who we are. God's provision of Christ in our place erases the debt of sin and gives permanent possession of the love of God to the child of God. No longer are you and I labeled sinner. No longer are you and I labeled sinful. You and I both are children of God, forgiven with sins tossed in a lake named forgetfulness. And just to be sure that Christ's resurrection from the dead is permanent work, there is a sign posted in front of that lake that says, no fishing. This is what we mean when we say, Christ was the perfect sacrifice. All your sin, past, present, future, have been nailed to the cross. Christ will not be crucified again. His work on your behalf is a one and done work. Your sin is gone. Like gone, gone. And God won't hold it against you, but neither will he allow you to take hold of it again yourself. It's at the bottom of the lake. Paul continues. Verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled Shall we be saved by his life? In these verses, Paul calls, uh, Paul uses what rabbis call light and heavy. It's an argument made covering the lighter things and the heavier things. We have a similar way of saying it here in America in a legal sense. We say it like this. If it's true in one place, it's true in another. Your spiritual possessions don't end at verse 8. They continue. Verse 9 is like opening a door to a whole other room in your house you didn't even know you had. Not only do you possess the love of God in Christ's death, you possess the spirit that raised Christ from the dead with his life. Paul says, That Jesus' life after death, Paul says, with Jesus' life after death, so too will you receive life unbound by death. (laughs) This is problematic to your problems. Because now you know that there's nothing that can kill you. There's nothing you can go through that will destroy you. You hear what I'm saying to you, church? No car accident, no cancer, no illness, no sickness, no number of age, any of that. All of it is just the vehicle by which you see glory. Paul says, you have reason to rejoice this morning 
Because in your possession, you not only have the love of God, but you also have in your hands the promise of life forever in his presence. Because Christ rose from the dead, he unchained the Christian's shackles to death. You possess life and life forever. I'm going to be in my seat with this one. You have one more reason to rejoice this morning. You're God's person. Romans 5.11. More than that. I love that. He says, you think those other four reasons were significant? Paul says, nah. I got a better reason than all of those. More than that, we also rejoice in God. Paul saves the best reason to rejoice last. He says, you can rejoice about your salvation. You can rejoice about your hope. You can rejoice about your problems and you can rejoice about heaven. But more than any of that, we rejoice in God. We rejoice in who he is. I know you're asleep this morning, but can I tell you about God? I don't need your permission. We rejoice in his omnipotence. He is all powerful, able to accomplish anything. We rejoice in his omniscience. He is all-knowing, knowing all things, and nothing is able to be hidden from him. We rejoice in his omnipresence. He is always awake and always present everywhere at all times. We rejoice in his eternality. He is not bound by, formed by, understood by the constraints of time. We rejoice in his immutability. He never changes who he is. His nature always was, always is, and always will be constant. We rejoice in his holiness. He is utterly and totally separated from sin. We rejoice in his love. His love knows no limits, knows no bounds. His love knows no confines or rules. Oh, this should penetrate the deepest places of our contentment. Our lives then should be testimonies for the world to see that no matter what may come about our lives, we have five reasons to remain a, a rejoicing people, smiling that he, that, that he makes sinners save, festive that he fortifies the villain's future with fortunes, delighted that he makes the dangers develop us, pleased that he would gift us our possessions permanently and glad because in all that we have gained greater than these is God. Stand with me and worship.